Amen. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Either way, we win. We are victorious in him. We are in Romans 8 again today. Just to remind you, the last half of Romans chapter 7 talked about the defeated man. While Romans chapter 8 describes for us victorious man. For instance, in Romans chapter 7, just to get a, a sense of the tone of it, to remind ourselves, in verses 18 and 19, what we read back then was, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. And in verse 24, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so chapter 8 begins, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we have transferred from defeated man to now victorious man. Something we also notice at the, the last half of Romans chapter 7, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned even one time. But in the first 16 verses of chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 15 times. So what makes the difference between a defeated man and a victorious man? I think the point Paul is making is clear. To have spiritual victory in your life, you must be energized by the Holy Spirit. If not, then we would be like a baseball team with only jerseys, nice uniforms, nice ball caps, but no players. You could have the nicest uniforms in the whole league, the best looking ones, the best colors, but without someone in them, they're, they're just empty shells. And so it is with us. Uh, without the Holy Spirit in us and uh, energizing us and enabling us, we are just empty shells and can do nothing on our own. In Romans 8, verses 9 through 17, Paul presents us seven ways the Holy Spirit gives us victory. The Holy Spirit indwells, regenerates, resurrects, enables, leads, assures, and confirms. So first of all, the way the Holy Spirit gives us victory is because He indwells us. Verse 9. Well, um, let's back up to verse 8 just so we can see the, a little bit of the context of what He's going to say in verse 9. Remember how we ended last week. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But now verse 9. But you are not in the flesh 
but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So, the Holy Spirit indwells us. <clears throat> this is only for believers, and it is for all believers. It's only believers. That is, um, no unbeliever is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. One of the key differentiations between a believer and a non-believer is whether they have the Holy Spirit or not. In fact, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him, as the end of verse 9 says. So this pertains only to believers. But what I want to focus on is that this is for all believers. Every believer. This happens, this, this must happen at the time of conversion. At the moment a person becomes a believer, they are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as a believer who's waiting to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Because to, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he isn't his. So you, they, every believer, as soon as they are born, again, is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. In fact, I think, actually, the Holy Spirit comes into the person's life before they're actually born again, as we'll see in the next point. Um, you might wonder which spirit. What, what spirit are we talking about here? Look at the wording here in verse 9 again. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ. So we have the spirit, the spirit of God, and the spirit of Christ. So who is it? That because the Trinity is so closely joined together, there are three persons in the one Godhead, you, you can't totally separate them. And so to speak of the Spirit of God, for instance, is the same as speaking of the Spirit of Christ. They're not different spirits. It's the same Spirit, just different ways of speaking about it. And so what we see here is a beautiful picture, really, of the Trinity. It's, you could talk about it as the Spirit, the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ. Um, it all points to the same person. Plus, notice the beginning of verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 begins, And if Christ is in you, verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So there are different ways to say it. If God is in you, if the Spirit is in you, if Christ is in you, um, is all the same. Uh, and notice that it is both that... Uh, the Spirit is in you, and you are in the Spirit. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. You are in the Spirit if the Spirit is in you. You see how it's both? You're in the Spirit, and the Spirit's in you. It's like a fish in water. <clears throat> you take the fish out of the water... That's not very healthy for that fish. It's going to start stinking after a while. It will die. The fish out of water is not designed to live that way. Well, <clears throat> the fish not only needs to be in the water, but the water needs to be in the fish, right? 
because that's how the fish breathes as the water is going through it and it processes it. So the fish has to both be in the water and the water has to be in the fish for it to function the way God designed it. The same thing is true for us. We have to be in the spirit and the spirit has to be in us. So the spirit indwells us and as the spirit lives within us, he does some marvelous things for us. Secondly, we see that the Spirit regenerates in verse 10. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Now, the body is dead and the reason for the body being dead, considered dead, is because of sin. This goes back to the Garden of Eden. Remember the, uh, the one negative command given to Adam and Eve, you shall not eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Genesis 2.17 But they did eat of it. And they, the moment they did, they began to die physically. They were separated from God spiritually. They were kicked out of the garden. They were cursed, and they began to die physically. And so Paul picks up on that thought in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, just to remind you of back then. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, that one man being Adam, of course, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So, uh, the body is dead because of sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That, that's what comes as a consequence of sin. Now it won't always be that way. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 says, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass this saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. But not till then. In the meantime, death is still our enemy. The consequence of sin is death of these bodies who shall deliver me from this body of death Paul asked and he says in verse 10 the body is dead because of sin <clears throat> your body your present body that you're living in is doomed it's, it's as good as dead because of sin it's already been corrupted you do not get to keep that body Yay! You get to turn it in for a resurrected one. So, just as an aside, if you think about how much time you're spending on this body that is dead and you don't get to keep anyways, profit, uh, bodily exercise profits a little, but exercise yourself rather to godliness. Um, 
So we don't get to keep this body. We'll get a new one one day. But this one is doomed. The body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. So here's the good news. Even though the body is doomed because of sin that's already happened, the spirit who indwells you is life because of righteousness. Now, <clears throat> just a couple of quick translation issues. This should be a capital S for spirit instead of a small s. Um, as the next verse clarifies, verse 11 says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And it's obvious in the next verse that he, what he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. And so that's the same thing he's talking about at the end of verse 10. The the, res, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit is life, not alive. The word is zoe, which means life, not alive. But the Spirit, just like sin is death, the Spirit is life for us. The Spirit means life because of righteousness, the opposite of sin. Um, the, the body and its deeds lead to death. The Holy Spirit and His work leads to life. The regenerating power of the Holy Spirit working in us to bring new life to us. As Titus 3.5 says, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And that regenerating, renewing power of the Spirit in our life is what gives us life. This is brought about, we are told here in verse 10, because of righteousness. If you look back at chapter 5, verse 21. The, the bookend um, verses of this passage, Romans 5, 12 through 21, are really echoed in Romans 8.10 We saw verse 12 Therefore just as through one man sin entered the world And death through sin and so forth The body is dead because of sin But the life But the spirit is life because of righteousness We see in verse 21 So that as sin reigned in death Even so grace Might reign through righteousness To eternal life Through Jesus Christ our Lord It is Christ who brings The righteousness to us and the Holy Spirit who applies it to our lives and, and so that we are declared righteous before God the Father. The Spirit indwells, the Spirit regenerates, brings us to new life. Even though these bodies are dead, it brings life to our spirit. And third, the Spirit resurrects in verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you so it is based on the power to raise Jesus if that same spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you with the power to raise Jesus remember this happened after Jesus had taken on all of our sin. That was placed on him 
on the cross. And it was after the father had turned away from him because he took that sin on him. Is after he was laid in the tomb for three days. After all that, the Holy Spirit resurrected Jesus back to life. Well, what Paul is saying here is, if the Holy Spirit did that for Jesus, he can do it for you because he's already taken away all your sin. Even though this uh, physical body will die someday, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If he could do it with Christ who took on all your sin, and you now declared righteous, he can easily raise you from the dead. So he has the power to raise us if the same spirit dwells in us. And that's why he begins with that important step of the indwelling spirit in verse 9. Your mortal body will die, as we saw in verse 10. But that same body will be resurrected one day. It will be made new. And the spirit resurrects. He has given a down payment of that and sealed you for that day of resurrection which he guarantees number four the spirit enables verses 12 and 13 therefore brethren we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live we are obligated to live for God. The word therefore, pointing back to the, the finished work of Christ, the saving work of Christ for you. Therefore, based on that, and based upon the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, that is, He made you new and applied the righteousness of Christ to you. Therefore, you are no longer in debt to sin. You are no longer under obligation to sin you're, or to the deeds of the flesh. You're not under the dominion of sin, as Romans 6 pointed out so clearly to us over and over again. Sin has no more dominion over you. It shall not reign in your life. And you are not under the law, but under grace. Again and again, Paul talks about that. We're no longer in debt to sin or the flesh. So if a person is still living according to the flesh, that person is not a believer. Those who are in the flesh, verse 8 said, cannot please God. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And so... The person in that state is not a believer. That person will die, not just physically. Remember, we're all going to die physically, but spiritually. And that spiritual death is separation from God. The person living in the flesh is not a believer. Paul is not here presenting us with a choice like, do you feel like living in the flesh or living in the spirit today? We're not, we're not given that choice. But rather he's giving a, a declaration of a state. You are either in the darkness or you are in the light. You're either, either walking according to the flesh. You are walking according to the spirit. 
It can't be both or, or either. It's one or the other to the exclusion of the other. So in this, we are enabled by the Spirit. We are obligated to live for God, but we are enabled by the Spirit. See, uh, verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you put to death the deeds of the body. That's pretty drastic. To put to death the deeds of the body means you have to commit murder. You have to kill something. You have to kill the deeds of your body. You cannot be on friendly terms with sin. You, you cannot make peace with sin. You, you cannot have a treaty with sin like, how about if you just keep over in this part of my heart and, and you stay there and you, you stay within the bounds there and I'll, I'll let you be. We kind of try to keep sin in check. We don't want to get rid of it totally. We cling to it and we give it some boundaries, but we don't kill it. Paul says we have to put it to death. We're going to see how John Piper states this. He has a video clip on this idea called Make War.
There's a violent, or needs to be a violent mean streak about us as we show no mercy towards self and sin that dwells within us. The goal is not to be at peace with the world, to be at peace with Satan, to be at peace with sin, or to even to be at peace with ourselves. The goal is to be at peace with God. And in order to do that, we must kill the deeds of the flesh. What happens when a person finds out that they have cancer? What, what do they do? They pay someone, an expert, great sums of money to go in with a knife and cut it out. Radical surgery. Go get it all out. And if that is not enough, you bombard the body in that place with radiation. Or you douse it with chemicals, chemotherapy, so toxic that it might kill you in the process. Whatever it takes, that's what a person does when they find they have cancer. Paul is here saying, you have a cancer of sin in your body. Do whatever it takes. Make war against it. Kill it by whatever means. Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Whatever it takes, do to kill the deeds of the body. Put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. You see that in verse 13? But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's by the Spirit. You will never, never Never be able to kill the deeds of the body on your own. You will never wage successful warfare against yourself. You don't have the spiritual fortitude to put to death the deeds of the body. You don't have the guts, the will, or the ability to kill sin in your life. But God has made provision for you. God knows our frame that we are but dust. And he knows our weakness and our inability. And so he says, by the Spirit do this. By the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. Holiness is not achieved by our unaided effort. That, that would mean mere moralism or legalism if we went that way. Holiness is not achieved by us apart from the Holy Spirit. But listen, holiness is also not achieved by the Holy Spirit 
apart from us. See how it works both ways? Holiness is not achieved by us apart from the Holy Spirit. And holiness, the way God has designed it, holiness is not achieved by the Spirit apart from us. We have to be involved in the process as well while we fully rely upon the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not make us make right decisions in life. So we are to actively, consciously, purposefully participate. Our, our own will and heart and desire to whatever degree we can must be given over to this process of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And we must recognize our utter dependence in doing so upon the Holy Spirit. Now, let's suppose the, our elders asked me to pick up this grand piano and move it over to the fireside room. I don't think I could do that. But if I got 10 strong men from this congregation to help me, to enable me, I could do it with a finger, couldn't I? I could do it pretty easy. God calls us to do something that we cannot do on our own. You may have heard from time to time that ne God never calls you to do anything that you cannot do. That's baloney. He calls us to do stuff we cannot do all the time. Be holy as I am holy. I can't do that. I know. Here's my Holy Spirit. He will dwell in you and he will, he will empower you and enable you as you rely upon him. God always calls us to do things we can't do so that we recognize our need to fully rely upon him. We become frogmen. Who frogmen are? They fully rely on God. Frogmen fully rely on God. That's how it's designed to be. So how does this this work that we are under obligation not to the flesh but to the spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh and we do it by the spirit how does this joint effort work well in closing here let me just uh, give a few examples Let's consider, for example, the sin of pride. Sin of pride, which is the fountainhead of a thousand other sins. I really believe that pride is at the, the bottom of most sins in our lives. Maybe not every one of them, but most sins stem from pride. It was the first sin ever as Satan lifted up his heart against God and says, I will be like the Most High and I will sit on his throne and so forth. And he was cast out of heaven because of that. There's so many sins that we do that have their origin in pride. The, the sin of coveting. 
Why does a person covet? They want something someone else has. It's because they are dissatisfied with what they have and what God has given to them and they think they deserve more, they deserve better and so this sin of coveting wells up within them but the reason that comes to fruition at all is because of a heart of pride. Or perhaps a person will lie because of pride. Why does a person lie? To protect themselves. No, I didn't do that because, because they want people to think better of them than they really are. They want to protect their reputation. And so in order to protect their reputation and their pride, they lie. Where does arguing conflict come from? I don't like something someone said or did against me. Or we have to be right. And so we, we argue and try to have our way because it's rooted in pride. And we could go on and on about how pride leads to things, but that's not the main point here. But pride is an awful sin in all of our lives. Sometimes it, it sneaks up on us. It's next thing you know, it's just there, standing right next to you, snuggling up to you, pride, and you respond in some kind of a smug way to someone else. You haven't even been thinking you were prideful, and then it just kind of comes out. Sometimes it just sneaks up on you. Other times it leaps out at you and grabs you by the throat and so, so you lash out at someone else out of your wounded pride. How do we kill it? How do we put it to death? Well, let me give you a few things to think about. First of all, Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal your heart. The, the place where the sin dwells is in your heart. It is a heart issue, and pride is always a heart issue. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal your heart. We can have such blinders on, can't we, to our own sin. I might be able to see it in you, and might even be glad to point it out in you. But it's harder to see in me. And so I need to ask the Holy Spirit, open my eyes to me, to my own heart, show me. That's what David prayed in Psalm 139, verse 23. Search my heart, O God, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We need God to show us because we are so blind to our own sin. So ask the Holy Spirit who dwells in you to show you your heart. What does it look like? It will not be a pleasant experience if you are sincere. But it's needful. If you're going to kill it, you have to see it and know it. Secondly, 
First, you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal your heart. And secondly, you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal His Word. The Holy Spirit is given to us in part to illuminate the Word of God in us. Jesus said, He, the Spirit of truth, when He comes, will guide you in all truth. And so we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the Word of God so that we can see. We can see what our sin is and we can see what God's remedy is to it. Not just getting rid of something, not just putting off something, but putting on righteousness. And what does that look like? Instead of lying, let every man speak truth with his neighbor. Not just putting off lying, but putting on truth, for instance. Ask the Holy Spirit to open the word to you, to reveal the word to you. There's a, a saying that either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. You, you have times in your life when you feel like you don't really want to be in this. You know why? Because that sin in you doesn't want to be found out. And when you start getting under the search light of the word of God that sin is exposed and there's something in you that wants to back away from that I don't think I'll have my quiet time today I, I don't think I want that much light and we may not think that well I don't have time today and so forth we make excuses whatever but we don't spend the time in the word that we know we ought to but let me tell you you need this word to reveal your sin and God's plan Imagine the person with cancer who said, I, I don't want to go to a doctor and find out if I have anything because then I'd have to deal with it and I don't want to have to deal with it, so I'm just going to ignore it. Ask God, His Holy Spirit, to reveal His Word. Third, memorize this Word. Psalm 119, 11 says, Your Word have I hidden in my heart so that I might put to death the deeds of the flesh. It doesn't say it that way. It says, your word I have hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against you. There's some correlation here between memorizing God's word, having it in your life and at the ready command so it comes to mind and, and to your heart in those moments of temptation that just gives you the edge and the ability to fight sin. Hide his word in your heart. Memorize it so that you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. Um, fourth, have a plan. If you're going to go into any kind of a battle, you need a battle plan. If you're going to make war, you better have a plan. What is your plan for fighting indwelling sin? Well, let me give you a few things I think ought to be part of your plan. First of all, put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6, 10 and following, if you need that passage to remind you, Put on the whole armor of God to wage successful warfare. Secondly, you need to know your own vulnerabilities. You know where you are vulnerable, when 
are the times that you are most likely to be tempted you know those things or you ought to know those things if you don't ask God to help show you the next time you sin think about what led up to that what were the circumstances what made you vulnerable in that moment that you lied or you lost your temper or whatever you did know how you are vulnerable and your vulnerabilities will be different from mine so you you need to ask God to help you see yours and then have a plan what will you do it's not a matter of if you ever sin again but next time you do next time you are tempted how are you going to have victory in that temptation what will help you get victory in that temptation have a plan it might be calling to memory verses you have memorized or singing Christian songs or calling up a brother or sister in Christ and whatever it is have a plan so those are just a few things um, and lastly repent and return <coughs> repent and return if you have gotten to the point that sin is welling up in you then you have moved away from God repent and return to him and all of these kinds of things we do asking and trusting that God by his spirit will enable us to do these he wants us to he wants us to be victorious he has given us his spirit to dwell in us to enable us to have victory and so he is on your side in this and if you ask him and trust him to enable you to have victory he is there for you the Holy Spirit leads us to victory because he enables us and he uh, resurrects us he regenerates us he indwells us and uh, several more things that we will look at next week I want to close with a thought that you know that Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven to come to this earth can you imagine what it would have been like to leave the throne room of heaven with unceasing praise to his person to leave that and come to earth and he dwelt here in humility for 33 years but I want you to think of this the Holy Spirit who is the third person of the Trinity the Holy Spirit who is also God left the glory of heaven to dwell where? in earthen vessels these bodies fit for destruction to dwell within us cracked pots for all of our life all of our Christian life and to bring us safely home to God let's pray
Oh God, how we thank you for your grace in our lives and your provisions for us in so many ways and everything that we need for life and godliness. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is crucified for our sins and resurrected for our regeneration and resurrection. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells these frail vessels. Thank you for your enabling work in us, without which we, we would be able to do nothing. But you are our power, our strength, our hope. And we turn to you. And I pray for every person in here, Lord, that we might leave this place glorifying you and in dependence upon you. And may you receive the glory and honor as you work your magnificent work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, you are dismissed.